In September 2018, the Royal College of Surgeons of England published new guidance to support surgeons in caring for patients at the end of life. The guidance gives clear advice about how to define and recognise the end of life and offers solutions for practising surgeons to support them in planning for care at the end of life. It also considers communication and decision-making processes between professionals and with families and with the wider healthcare team. I'm Murray Anderson-Wallace and in the next two podcasts I'll be exploring some of the issues with the architects of the new guidance and considering some of the ethical dilemmas associated with end-of-life care faced by surgeons in their daily work. Professor Kerry Thomas is founder and national clinical lead of the GSF Centre for End-of-Life Care. There was a lovely quote in the Royal College of Surgeons' guidance. Good surgeons know how to operate, better ones know when to operate, and the best make patient-centred decisions on when not to operate. Dame Claire Marks is past president of the Royal College of Surgeons and a consultant orthopaedic surgeon. I do think that as a profession we have been risk-averse in having these discussions, and that was one of the reasons why I thought it was so important to start with surgery, particularly when we know that not every surgical intervention can really be justified towards the end of life. Kerry Thomas. The default position is to save life. So if someone collapses in the street, the blue light would come for that person who's collapsed in the street and heart attack and and you'd know emergency, drop everything, this is a life and death situation. But what we're not quite realising sometimes is the blue light is going for many people, but much slower. Miss Sue Hill is a consultant vascular surgeon and a vice president of the Royal College of Surgeons. I asked her to outline why she felt this guidance was needed. From a surgeon's point of view, actually appreciating that people die to some extent, goes against the grain. We tend to be a group of people who are proactive. Many of us find it difficult to say, either I don't think I can do anything surgically to help you, or although there are operations I can perform, perhaps it's not in your best interest. Dame Claire Marks. I was very aware that some surgeons who quite legitimately wanted to have conversations with patients about whether it was right for them to have surgery, were feeling constrained because they were afraid that others would say they didn't want to operate because they were afraid of their figures not looking good. And this opened up a whole area of discussion about when was it right to consider surgery when essentially the patient was probably very close to the end of their lives. And it also brings up the question is, how does a surgeon know what it is that the patient wants for their end-of-life care? And most of the time, we don't know what they want. Most of the time, patients haven't really thought hard about what it is they want, and they don't have any way of discussing that. Uh, Often, they're afraid to have that conversation with their family and friends, They're probably afraid to think about it for themselves. And they certainly aren't expecting to have that conversation with their surgeon because by then, their own doctor will have put in their minds an expectation that there is a surgical procedure. Surgery near the end of life can be appropriate either because it will provide palliation or if the patient's priority is to prolong life at all cost. But as the guidance clearly points out, Surgeons have a duty to ensure that these decisions are well informed, based on realistic expectations of the course of a disease, and take into account the limitations of the operation. Sue Hill explains. Inflicting a large operation on a patient who's frail, 
and will not get the benefit from that surgery is no kindness. Although sometimes operating on a patient who is close to death to relieve their symptoms is appropriate. But how many people does this affect and how can they be identified? Kerry Thomas explains. In a hospital, the figures are that 30% of people at any one time are in their last year of life. One in three. What we're trying to do in our work is try to face mortality with our ageing population and thinking, well, there are predictors and there are ways of assessing which patients might be in their last year of life, helping then to identify these people so that you don't rush into surgery and allow the person to have that say and make a decision. Careful deliberation is required when considering invasive treatments that will directly impede the patient's quality of life but have no additional value to the patient. I asked Dame Claire Marks and Sue Hill to outline some of the issues that surgeons should consider. Well, people think that they will never be blamed for operating, and I'm not sure that that's the case. I think if you know that when you go to have the conversation and it's something around, there's a one in ten chance I could make this patient better, the patient might say, well, we'll take it. But for me, that's a really awful set of odds. I think that when you know that your chances of making someone better are less than 50%, actually you should be having a good conversation with them about there is a chance I could make someone less well. They need to understand what you know and what you are computing in terms of the risks you're taking in the same way as you do. So there's this terrible dilemma of could I make you worse? Yes. Could I make you symptomatically better, but not make you any better at all? Yes. Could I make you better, perhaps, for a short while? Sue Hill. Sometimes you'll find that the family are very keen for aggressive treatment and the patient themselves has decided that the time has come not to intervene further. So there is a difficult dynamic there. But as a doctor, your first responsibility is to the patient. Dame Claire Marks again. Most people express a view that they don't want to die hooked up to loads of tubes or in discomfort. A lot of people say they want to die at home, although I don't think they really understand the problems of dying at home. The problems from the point of view of their family and from the system, even though it can be an incredibly good experience for for the individual person. I asked Sue Hill to give me some examples to illustrate the dilemmas faced in practice. At the other end of the spectrum, you might be presented with somebody who's had some sort of major intra-abdominal catastrophe. Ruptured aneurysm would be typical, that's my area of expertise. So they've had a ruptured aneurysm, but it may well be that from your experience, you know that that patient is highly unlikely to survive the repair of a a catastrophe like a ruptured aneurysm. That involves an entirely different sort of conversation with the patient, whereby you almost have to break the news to them at very short notice that they are imminently going to die. And that requires a different sort of sensitivity to the discussion about quality versus quantity. And that would be the example in my book of a bad death. And I think it behoves us to take responsibility for these things. Kerry Thomas. In our experience, a lot of people, especially a lot of doctors, think that death is failure. So we have to try to work through that and think death isn't failure, but a bad death is failure. Sue Hill provides further examples from her practice. 
people's life expectancy now is vastly different than it was even 20, 30 years ago. And surgeons are often accused of being ageist. And of course, we shouldn't be ageist. We should judge each patient on their merits, so to speak, as we see them in our consulting room. And there's no reason to say that an 85-year-old shouldn't be absolutely fit for surgery, in some cases more fit for surgery than an unfit 55 or 60-year-old. But there is pressure on us not to say this patient is very elderly and very frail, and I do not think they are suitable for the sort of surgical intervention they require. So I'll give you another example from vascular surgery. Aortic aneurysms, the majority of patients, we insert a stent. That is such an innocuous procedure that it's no exaggeration to say that one could repair an aneurysm endovascularly in someone within a few days of their death. And surgeons find themselves in a very difficult situation because sometimes they can be discussing an elderly patient, possibly in their mid to late 80s, who has a large aortic aneurysm, which would kill them if it ruptured. But they also have coexisting morbidities. It's not uncommon to see a patient perhaps with a lung tumour, which isn't giving them any symptoms, but will in the future give them symptoms. And possibly some patients are just beginning to get a little bit confused and possibly being diagnosed with early dementia. What's the best way of treating that patient? From the point of view of their aneurysm, they are probably within the last year of their life. Should we treat them with an endovascular aneurysm repair? Because we can, and it will stop them dying from an aneurysm. Or should we accept that actually an aneurysm death is quick, it's not particularly awful, and the other conditions they have, such as the lung cancer and the dementia, could actually result in very unpleasant deaths. But as surgeons, yet again, who have a skill in repairing a particular problem, in this case an aortic aneurysm, sometimes we find it very difficult to make the judgment that we shouldn't be treating those patients. It's clear that the views of patients and their families are central to supporting good decisions about end-of-life care. Dame Claire Marks explains. If I think now about the conversations in the post-Montgomery era about informed consent, I really think that surgeons have to focus in on what is it that that patient really needs to know when they're giving their consent to undergo a surgical procedure. And it's not just the patient. I think that the family have to understand what conversation is happening between surgeon and patient because there will be times when the patient will have been given a lot of heavy analgesia and sometimes some opiates which may give them a, a slightly different view of life and death and it may be that the family will know that conversations have already taken place. I asked Professor Thomas whether it's possible to identify those nearing the end of their lives. We might be not too bad at defining when someone might be in the last days of life. We struggle with final year of life. The point is, though, if we could try to be better at it than we are, very strong evidence from all over the world, in all different conditions, that it is possible to identify these people. If we accept that people's priorities can change towards the end of their life, perhaps the question becomes not when am I going to die, but how do I want to live my life now?
People who've had serious conditions, even cancer, often say that it's reprioritized their life. The death of a loved one, it reprioritizes to what's important. And that can only be good if we can use that energy. Because then people are saying, well, actually, this and this and this are important. So-called bucket lists and everything, if, if that's important, but often to do with relationships and getting the house in order and a different landscape. But it's actually more than that, we think. It's also about coming to terms with the fact that there is death at the end of this road for us all and how do we want to live. As access to complex procedures increases and where the previously impossible has become routine, it's clear that just because we can intervene doesn't mean we should. As the new guidance makes clear, professional efforts should be focused towards orchestrating appropriate care, balancing the overuse of interventions and the underprovision of care. The guidance also addresses the particular complexities of decision-making with patients who lack capacity and where the surgeon must act in their best interests. In our next episode, I'll explore what can be done practically to support patients and their families in these complex decisions and crucially to explore who is best placed and when to have these life and death conversations. Full information about the Royal College of Surgeons' guidance on caring for patients at the end of life can be found at the Royal College of Surgeons' website. These podcasts were an Anderson Wallace production for the Royal College of Surgeons. The contributors were Dame Claire Marks, Miss Sue Hill, Professor Kerry Thomas and Katerina Sarafidi. Music by Issa Suarez. The production was written and produced by Marie Anderson Wallace and Roland Denning. <laughs>